Well, good morning again, everybody. I realize I didn't introduce myself. My name is Dave McKeon. I serve as the Kids and Youth Discipleship Pastor here at Trinity. It's a joy to be with you here today. Y'all, it's not cold, right? It's all in your head. I'm from Buffalo, New York. This is a nice spring day. We're going to enjoy it. Go Bills. Got my socks on. Here we go. All right. We'll see. If you're a Chiefs fan, you are a lovely person as well. Just making sure everybody is welcome here. Um, I have some great news to celebrate with you first before we get started this morning. Um, you saw these kids being blessed, and these kids represent just some of the many, many children who have been coming to Trinity recently. If you haven't entered by our lower entrance in a while, you may want to wear some like goalie pads, some, some shin guards, because there's a lot of ankle biters down there. You know, we are overflowing with kids, and it's, it's incredible. Most churches in the United States of America have a percent kids ratio of 15%, and we are well over 30%. We are a church that's growing young, and that's a really good sign of health in a church. And thank you to the kids volunteers who answered our call in the fall to help take care of these kids. Where are kids volunteers out there who served with kids? Y'all, let's give it up for these folks. Thank you so much. Because of you and the work of our kids pastor, Katie Osi and Katie Bergeron, kids coordinator, Ellie Donovan, and the whole team, um, we've become a really welcoming place and people are figuring that out. So much so to the point that we've actually had to turn folks away the last couple months because our rooms are overflowing. Um, but the good news is we have a couple more rooms we can open up. Some of you stepped in. But I do want to invite you, church, at this moment to help us be a hospitable place. We don't want to turn anyone away. In opening these two new rooms, we'll be able to make space for 25 or so more kids, particularly the littlest ones at 9 a.m. and then pre-K kids also. Um, so we have a need there. We're looking for about 16 more folks to fill in the volunteer team. So if you feel a nudge in that direction or you're curious at all, please get in touch with Katie Osi or myself, anyone on staff, and we'll direct you to how you can step in and continue to make this an incredibly hospitable place for our young people. So that is a celebration, though. We have so many folks coming here right now. All right. We are in the season of epiphany right now. Epiphany. You know what that word means. Epiphany is a sudden realization of something. Now, it's also a church season. So if you're new to Anglicanism or you've been around here for a while and you're like, I hear them using that word, but not like I thought. Epiphany is the sequel to Christmas. Christmas is the season of realizing that, oh, Jesus is God become human. God moved into the neighborhood to spend time with us. We celebrate that at Christmas. But during Epiphany, we take an extended look at the character of just who this Jesus is, what it means for the world, and what it means for us specifically. In Kids in Youthland, or um, in with middle school, high school students, all semester, we're looking at this theme. The theme is this, that I know who I am because I know who Jesus is. I know who I am because I know who Jesus is. Meaning, there's lots of places I could look to figure out who I am, right? I could look to friends, I could look to products and culture, there's so many places I could go, but we want to spend a specific season saying, first, I want to look at who Jesus is and what that says about my identity. And today's passage that we'll read in Mark speaks to that for all of us. So I want to practice, because if you find yourself, like millions of believers over the years, people have looked to the life of Jesus, you just might find yourself invited to make a shift in your thinking, in your heart, in your posture, and eventually how we live. It feels a bit like holding on to something, and then letting go, which is both liberating, but sometimes terrifying. So we're going to practice this, everybody. I want you to put something in your hands. Keys would work well. Your phone, a wallet. Put it in your hands, a pen. Get something. And I want you to just hold it tightly. We're all holding tightly to something. 
And this is the invitation that Jesus has. When he says, follow me, he invites us, that thing that we're holding tightly, I want to invite you to let it go. So go ahead, let it go. It's a lovely noise. That wasn't so hard, right? Well, as we'll see, the journey is not one that's necessarily easy, but there's many who have gone before us. And so I want you to pay attention as we read this text this morning from Mark, that there are two different types of letting go that Jesus invites people towards. So let's read. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. That's the first letting go. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. That's the second letting go. Follow me. And I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little bit further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence today. We ask for your comfort and your courage to be with us. God, you've been calling people for generations to follow you. Sometimes it feels so clear and easy, and sometimes it feels clouded. Now, the reality is we're all carrying something in here that we're holding tightly to, something that we think we needed, and you might be inviting us to loosen the grip on it. God, I pray that you give us a sense that you are with us in doing this. God, thank you that you hold us, and thank you for the children who showed a message to us that we are your beloved. It's nothing we need to earn. We are your beloved. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, come and make your word alive this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so Epiphany and John the Baptizer. That's where we start in this Epiphany season. John the Baptizer was one that was pointing people towards Jesus, helping us realize, ah, this is the guy. So John, when he bursts on the scene, he is a prophet's prophet. This is a wild guy. He's out in the lonely places wearing uncomfortable clothes, eating locusts, wild honey. But for some reason, people are drawn to him. He had a really clear message. John the baptizer, who is Jesus' cousin, is out at the Jordan River, and he has a message which is repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. He then goes on to say, don't look to me to be your savior. There's someone coming. There's a Messiah coming. Look for him. I baptize with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so there's a buzz in the air. People are starting to get curious. They're wondering, what is this all about? But people are coming in droves. The people from Jerusalem, we hear, are going out, and everybody is going to receive this baptism of John. But he said, this is not the end of the road. This is leading you towards something. So then Jesus shows up. John is arrested. Jesus' cousin is arrested. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus starts speaking a message of repentance, as John did, but also of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here. I'll read again what Jesus says. When Jesus came, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. I think for us to really sit with this text, it would be helpful to drill down on what some of these words mean when Jesus said it. Time is one big idea that we'll look at, but also this word repentance and repent. 
I know for me, this is one that I've got to pay attention to and do some work with. Because if you're like me, you may have grown up with a sense that repentance is this idea that I say sorry for something I did and then I feel really bad about myself. And that's the whole point. That like the point of this word is now I feel really bad and somehow like God is really happy that I'm really sad about a bunch of stuff. Maybe you grew up with that too. I don't know. But I want to get to the root of what does repentance mean to the people who heard it. The word used is metanoia. Can you all say metanoia? metanoia? Well done. We're all speaking our imagined version of Greek. That's lovely. We'll just pretend that's exactly what it sounded like. The word metanoia meant this. For the people who heard it, it meant to change your mind and your heart, to come to a point of changing your mind and your heart. So when Jesus says repent, he's saying change your mind and your heart about something. It was, I was going this way, and I realized that's not the way. This is the way. It doesn't mean feel terrible about yourself or be in a place of shame. And I was talking to a friend recently about this message and this idea, and he said, I've never heard that before. And I know many commentators lament that that's become our common understanding of repentance is that it's supposed to end with just feeling bad. Now, it doesn't mean it's not easy, and it doesn't mean there might not be pain. C.S. Lewis, guy who wrote Narnia, brilliant writer, had this to say about repentance. And I love this because me, I was a math teacher in a former life. Y'all, I do algebra to relax. <laughs> I am a huge nerd, and I am okay with it. I know we've got our students in here, so middle school, high school students, I know you're right in the midst of it. This algebra is going to be fresh. For the rest of you, you're going to have to go back into the recesses of your brain. But if you can remember solving an algebra equation, right? You start with a bunch of unknowns. It's like figuring out life, and you keep working it, working it. You get to the end, and it's something equals something. And what would happen if you got to the end, and all of a sudden it's like five equals seven? Uh Uh-oh. Something went wrong, right? The math doesn't add up. C.S. Lewis says, that's what sin is like. Sin is like we get off track in our math and we get to the end and it didn't add up. And we have this sense of like something's not adding up. And here's the thing what repentance is and what it isn't. He says, is the way forward to just keep bashing ahead, just add variables randomly to each side, just magically take something away so that it works out? That'd be living in denial. He says, no, the only way to get back to the right path is to retrace your steps, turn around, realize I was wrong, I was off. Retrace your steps and then get back to the path forward. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, repent. He says, the math isn't adding up in your life. There might be sin that happened to you or sin that you've done, and you've got off course, and you're over here. And repentance isn't meant to be a thing that, oh, now feel terrible that you ended up there. There's good news, right? Jesus says, good news of the kingdom. Repent, turn around, and then believe, because I have a path for you to follow, not one that leads further into chaos, but one of life. If you like hiking metaphors, it works really well too. Imagine you're on a path and you're leading people. This represents, right, that when we get off track, sometimes it impacts others. And you get off in the woods and you realize you're lost. The best thing to do is not to just keep going forward into the unknown, but to admit, hey, we missed it. We missed the path. Turn around, retrace your steps, and find that path of life. Now that process of repentance, it is painful. To admit you're wrong to others hurts. To retrace your steps and look at time lost, that can be painful. But the point is to get to the path of life. So when Jesus says, repent, receive the kingdom, and believe, it is good news. That might be the message that some of you need to hear today. The first letting go that God calls us to is let go of the fact that, hey, I can't get myself out of this mess. 
Sin has got me here. I'm responsible. And I'm saying, God, show me your path. Repentance. Now, the second word that we need to look at is time. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. We lose a lot of sense of what time means in English. We flatten it out. In the New Testament, there's two words used. One is kairos and one is chronos. All right, everybody, let's participate. Kairos. Kronos. We're such good Greek speakers. This is amazing. You may not be familiar with Kairos, but Kronos, you know that. And if you're school now, you know Kronos, chronology. You're looking at those in history class. These are two different concepts of how time is measured that for us, we just get translated as the word time. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he says Kairos. Now, why is that? Now, these stand in contrast to each other. Kronos, if Kronos is measured in seconds, Kairos is measured in seasons. If Kronos is measured in minutes, Kairos is measured in moments. And not just any moment, but divine moments. <clears throat> Kronos was a Greek god. And this Greek god was one, not one you wanted to mess with. There's some terrifying art out there if you want to deep dive into what Kronos was like. But what he represented was the impersonable and rhythmic procession towards death. Kronos reminds us of our mortality. Y'all, you've all experienced Kronos time. Students in the room, have you ever watched the clock wondering when the period's going to end? Okay? Have you all ever been in a sermon wondering how long is this guy going to go? <laughs> have you been to the DMV? You've experienced Kronos time. Right? But for all of us, the older we get, Kronos starts taking over. Our lives are dominated by schedules, by things we can't avoid, by a schedule that feels like it's just constraining us to death. Our bodies start falling apart and we're reminded of our mortality. That's why I love that we just got to bless these kids publicly, not in a private ceremony, but in front of everybody. Y'all kids live in Kairos time more than Kronos, don't they? Right? If you go to a four-year-old and say, you want to go to the zoo? They'd say, could you imagine them saying, I've got a two o'clock. I just, I can't make it. <laughs> kids show us what we're made to live by. They live trusting their good parents. If you had the opportunity to have a good parent, to know what's coming next, not judged by a march towards Kronos, but what wonderful thing is going to happen. As we get older, you know, the reality is we have to deal with Kronos on this side of history. We're not there yet, but I believe that one day we are made to live in a divine Kairos moment. And these moments are available to us. It's heaven breaking through into our current time. A Kairos moment also carries the sense of ripeness, when a fruit is ripe and it is ready to be picked. You experience these personally in your lives, but we also experience them corporately. I was thinking back a couple years ago, if you were in Atlanta in the fall of 2021, and you're a Braves fan, you experienced an incredible Kairos season, right? As the fall started, they're a wild card. You're like, oh, what could happen? What, what good could happen here? And then they just keep winning, and they keep winning and winning, and now suddenly people start mark, stop marking time by chronology, by chronos. It's not like the schedule and what makes sense. It's like, no, when are the Braves playing? I'm going to orient my life around this new reality. Young and old are throwing out reasonable bedtimes to stay up to watch the Braves play the Dodgers on the West Coast, right? That's what happens in Kairos time, is the way that we normally, our normal economy of life changes, and we pay attention to the moment and what is happening. Here's the thing also about Kairos moments. They're marked by good news, and they don't come out of nowhere. For the Braves that season, bear with me a moment on a little sports nerdery, okay? Midway through that season, the Braves had a losing record at the All-Star break. 
And at that point, a lot of teams just sell off everybody, um, sell off their best players. Could you imagine if the Braves have sold Acuna at that point? But they doubled down. They went out and traded for some really good players. People thought it was insane. So by the time it got to the fall and people start recognizing and people start wearing more and more Brave stuff, buying the swag, it didn't come out of nowhere. There were things that had happened in the past that had led to it being a really exciting moment that people were swept up in. It's the same when Jesus comes on the scene. John the baptizer had set the scene for this. And more than that, God had been working for centuries through the prophets, seeding a message of Messiah. There's a Kairos moment in the entire Roman Empire. I love this as a history nerd. I asked for a show of hands of history nerds at 9 a.m. and no one raised their hand. I felt really lonely, but again, I'm the unashamed nerd. So do we have anyone here? Let's go. Oh, come on. Let's go. Yo, there was a Kairos moment happening then. 300 years before Jesus showed up, Alexander the Great had conquered the known region of the Mediterranean, the what known Western region, brought with him Koine Greek, which is a common language. Wherever you went, any of the port cities and in the major cities, you could speak a single language, communicate to many cultures. The Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which I know, ironically, for you history nerds out there, wasn't very peaceful if you were certain people groups, but in the core of the empire, you could travel safely from end to end, speak a common language. And more than that, the Jewish diaspora had started, and this is God's version of subverting something terrible. Because of oppression, Jews had scattered throughout the empire, but, when, but they brought with them the synagogue system. So wherever you went, you could speak Greek, you could travel safely, and you could go to a place where people had an understanding of who Messiah was. When Paul showed up in the early missionaries, Rome was a tinderbox ready to explode with this subversive message of the gospel that eventually toppled empire. It's incredible. And so Jesus showed up into this scene, bringing this Kairos moment that was a season for lots of people, but also for some individuals. It was a very personal moment. And so we see Jesus walking on the shore, showing up to four fishermen, inviting them to follow him. Now, with these guys, I love these fishermen and how they, how they respond. Their Kairos moment doesn't come out of nowhere. Similarly, there's a history to it. Andrew, the first one that we meet. Andrew was a disciple of John the baptizer. He followed him around, helped him in his ministry. Almost certainly, these four men had received John's baptism. That first letting go, repentance, forgiveness of sins. They had an understanding of that. In fact, when Andrew was hanging out with John the baptizer one day, Jesus walked by and John said, oh, that's the dude. He's going to take away the sins of the world. That's the guy I've been talking about. And so Andrew says, all right, bet, I'm out. I'm going to go hang out with this guy. And he goes and gets his brother, Simon, and they spend a day with Jesus. You can read about it in John chapter 1. So they already have an understanding of who Jesus is. And so when Jesus comes by and says, follow me, they are ripe. The Kairos moment is ready for them to follow. What are they feeling in that moment? Now, it wouldn't have been easy for them to just drop these nets, y'all, or shouldn't have been. Here's what they should have been thinking if they were thinking in Kronos time. They should have been thinking, this is my sustenance. This is how I make a living, and this is how those who depend on me are going to eat. This is also my identity. I'm a fisherman. We've done this for generations. If I walk away from this, it could bring shame on my family. It's not just an isolated, spur-of-the-moment decision that led to this moment. Only Kairos time can break into Kronos time to where somebody's ready to just follow, just like that. 
I think it's worth mentioning too how this letting go to follow me differs from repentance. All right, so back to repentance. And Jesus is calling people to repentance. Remember, we're off track. The algebra has gone wrong. I recognize there's sin in my life. I have been in control of my life. And in repentance, I say, God, I need your path. I'm no longer going to be the ruler of my life. You be the king of my heart. You show me the path. That's repentance. Repentance restores us to God. We get right with God. This ask that Jesus has of the fishermen to follow me, this invitation, is one that's going to be a stepping out in faith, but it's also going to turn them outward to bless others. Do you notice what he says? You're not just going to fish for fish. You're going to fish for what? For men. You're going to fish for men. And they're like, what does that mean? He says, your life is going to matter to the people around you. This also would have been blowing their minds because they would think, no, I'm just a fisherman in the backwater of the backwater of the Roman Empire. My life matters to other people of nations that I can't even imagine. And Jesus says, just watch. Come follow me. These men, they teach us how to live in many ways, but it's not easy. In many ways, they show us the greatest commandment, right? Repentance is love God. Follow me has a tinge of love your neighbor. It's restoring us back to what God's called us to. Here's the deal. We've all got nets. For these men, their net was the thing that sustained them and, their thing, and the thing that gave them identity. Fishing was not a sin. They were not doing anything wrong by fishing. That's good to know for us. Because if you're putting yourself into this story, just remember, Repentance is when God's calling you back from something where you've gone wrong. Follow me. You're in a comfortably oriented place that makes sense. I'll show you what this was like for me. Because here's, here's the process that we would go through. Dropping nets means moving from a place where we are oriented from something that makes sense. Jesus calls us to a new orientation, to be reoriented. But what happens in the middle? Disorientation. Walter Brueggemann is a brilliant Christian thinker who had introduced this concept that God's people are always moving through a process of orientation around a way of life that makes sense through a season of disorientation to reoriented towards God's best. I want to get this out of the way too. Don't go quit your job tomorrow and join ministry. That's not what this passage is saying. Maybe it is for a few of you out there. For me, dropping my nets actually led me to commit more to the work that I was in. I lived for so long thinking that what I needed, what I was holding on so tightly to, was I need a job that will satisfy every itch that I have, and then I will know the good life. I will have a job where I'm experiencing incredible satisfaction, where I'm performing the best, outperforming everybody, and that I'm getting loads of affirmation from certain people who I just need to hear their well done. That's what I thought. And after going through a couple different job changes in a somewhat short amount of time, my wife looked at me and very kindly said, you know what this restlessness that you feel? I don't think it's the job. It might be you. <laughs> I hope you have someone in your life who can tell you that. And I had to take a good long look and say, yeah, I think that's the common denominator in all of these stops along the way. I feel restless, but it's me. And so I went through a long process of slowly letting go of the need to find full satis and deep satisfaction, of needing to find affirmation from certain people, of needing performance to drive everything that I did. It was slow, and it could only be done with the counsel of others, with opening up, and it was scary. 
It wasn't just like a drop the net. It was like, here, one finger. Okay, we're getting there. That disorientation takes time. Because if that's how I lived, I'm oriented of like, that's the good life. To reorient to something new, that can be tough. One of the most liberating and terrifying questions and prayers you can, you can make is this. It's God, what would you have me let go of for your sake and for the sake of others? Most of these are going to revolve around your vision of what the good life is. Sit with that. Your vision of what the good life is is probably one of the things you're subconsciously holding on to. And I don't, again, back to repentance, this is not to lead you to feel bad about yourself. We're all holding on to some things that are really good. Jesus is also inviting us to experience life in his kingdom. And that's almost always going to involve a step away from a thing that we thought we needed. But God is not making this invitation out of a place of shaming you. It's out of a place of love. So it's some version of the good life. And that could involve relationships that you think you need. Could involve that friend group that you think you need to be part of. Could involve a theological framework you've worked with your whole life. Maybe something like, oh, repentance means I feel awful. Some way that you've experienced God. It could be something to do with hospitality and welcoming people into your life. Y'all, I know for me, just one example, some of the heroes of our church are those who are involved in foster care and adoption. These are people who have decided to go from an oriented place into some extreme disorientation to reorient around a life that is welcoming to those that are on the margins in a beautiful way. It's amazing. Those are some of the folks who I think show us the way. But as Addie Norman said, if you all know Addie Norman, we are talking about the message. She said, make sure everybody hears this. So shout out to Addie, who I think she's out of town today, that the extreme answer is not always the holy one, okay? It can be small things that God is calling you to let go. So what is it? You're also going to have to pay attention to Kairos time because we're not going to be able to let go of that thing that we think we need for sustenance and identity unless we're experiencing God's call. Otherwise, it won't make sense. All right, I want to leave you with this. What can we do? What's the next step we can take? For me, this year, I took up Chris's encouragement to start journaling consistently. So January 1st, there I am journaling at like 11.50 in my bed. I think I started earlier, but I came back to it, and yes, it was on my phone. That's fine. That counts. And this prayer came to me, and it had to do with this idea of letting go and being held. The prayer that came to me was so simple, but it hit me at such a deep place. The prayer was this. It was just, Lord, as I go to sleep, as I let go into sleep, would you hold me? That was it. And it made me want to weep. like laying there in my bed. And for some reason, that's what I needed to hear. And some of you, that might be a prayer for you to take with you right now, just as you're in the morning, in quiet places, in your bed, like, Lord, hold me as I sleep, as I let go, as I go to a place where I'm not in control. And I added to that. Over the last couple weeks, I've added, Lord, hold those who are dear to me. Hold my dreams. Hold my insecurities. Hold my finances. (laughs) Whatever it is, hold these things. And hold me as I sleep, as I let go. So I give that to you. With our middle school and high school students, over the years we've done a prayer that involves what we did this morning with clenched fist. And they'll say, God, here's the things I've been holding on to that I think I need. And as an act of my body doing what I want my heart to do, I'm going to open my hands and say, God, in faith, I open my hands. 
Y'all, unless you open up and let go, nothing new can happen in that space. So that's a prayer for you. We also have some great things in the church coming up. This afternoon, 4.30, we have a Hearing God study that starts in the chapel right behind right here. What a great place to go explore what God might be saying to you. And then we have Alpha, as Adrian said, starting February 8th. For some of you, Alpha is the next step. That's giving God not the finger, but just one finger, (laughs) opening up, all right? And maybe for some of you, your encouragement to drop the nets is to say, I'm, I'm called to go invite, right? Be fishers of men. Whatever it is, whatever the invitation to drop your nets, it's going to have an element that orients you towards others, to where your life is a blessing to others. I have some questions that I want to leave you with here as well. Where do you feel Kairos time interrupting Kronos time in your life? Sit with that. Pay attention. God tells long stories. And often things that, he's been, that have been bubbling up for a while, they start to connect. Sometimes you need others to work that out with. And this, this is simple, right? What are my nets? And which nets might I feel invited to drop? Or just take one finger off and see what the Lord does. I want to read to you from Matthew to close out this time. This is from Matthew 11, 28, from 30, 28 to 30. This is from the message version. So it may not sound, you'll catch the sense of it. It's going to sound more familiar than maybe you'd used to if you read it there. This is Jesus talking about what life with him looks like. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amen. God bless you.